My fellow plebs, River is setting a new standard in Bitcoin. At river.com, you'll pay zero fees when you dollar cost average. Truly the best way to build your Bitcoin wallet. All Bitcoin at River is held in secure cold storage with 100% full reserves. There's no need to wonder what's happening behind the scenes. Your Bitcoin is your Bitcoin to withdraw at any time. Additionally, River lets you make Bitcoin payments via the Lightning Network, offers a Lightning integration for developers, and allows you to mine Bitcoin directly to your River account. River has a level of service that is unheard of in this industry, including phone support, private client advisors, and the ability to designate beneficiaries to inherit your Bitcoin wealth. River has become the premium name in Bitcoin that anyone can easily access. Sure, you have a place to buy Bitcoin, but have you tried River? See and feel the difference at river.com and the River iOS app, the preferred partner of Bitcoin Magazine. My fellow plebs, today's podcast is also brought to you by Moon Mortgage. As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage makes it possible to materialize your assets into real estate. Through the collateralization of mortgages with Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will be launching lending solutions to allow investors to easily leverage their assets to purchase investments in owner-occupied property. Moon Mortgage's crypto mortgage will be launching soon for home buyers in Texas, Florida, and Colorado, and will also be open to investors in most states across the U.S. for investment properties. Welcome to the future of mortgages. Visit moonmortgage.com today to register and learn more. Moon Mortgage Residential is registered with the NMLS under number 235334. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Cosmic Bitcoin Show on Bitcoin Magazine Twitter Spaces. Today, Matthew Pines and Brandon Green will be joining us. This is all made possible by Bitcoin Magazine and Bitcoin 2023. Really excited for this conversation. And if you want to hear more conversations like this, kind of talking about perhaps the non-monetary aspects of Bitcoin or maybe the philosophical side of things, come on down to Bitcoin 2023, May 18th to 20th in Miami Beach, Florida. It's going to be a great time. You can save 10% with code COSMIC. And I know Brandon has some awesome stuff cooking for us, and I want to pick his brain on that a little bit later. But yeah, without further ado, Matt and Brandon, how are you guys today? I'm doing well. Excited. It should be fun. Yeah, likewise, feeling super excited, uh, ready to, to dive into some uh, fun topics. You know, I'm especially excited to be on here with old Matt Pines. He's one of the smartest people I've ever met in the space. Uh, every time I talk to him, my mind is blown. So I can't wait to dive into it. Awesome. Yeah, no, I've been really, really impressed, Matt, by your work, especially. And I suppose I'll provide a little bit of background for our audience. So Matthew is a an policy analyst for the Bitcoin Policy Institute. They're doing some great work advocating for Bitcoin on policy grounds, ranging from national security to energy, philosophy, everything in between. And Matthew also, and, and to be clear, he is the national security fellow for the Bitcoin Policy Institute. And he is also the director of intelligence for the Krebs Stamos Group, who delivers strategic insights to firms facing geopolitical and technological risks, and increasing exposure to nation-state conflicts. So Matt, Matt's done some great work, um, very inter interdisciplinary, but looking at Bitcoin through the lens of geopolitical work for VP, and then also his work with Krebs Stamos, which Matt, maybe you can speak a bit more to in a sec, but you're, Matthew as well has a master's of, science, master's of Science in Philosophy and Public Policy at the London School of Economics, as well as a Bachelor's of Art in Physics and Philosophy 
from the Johns Hopkins University. And then, I'll, Brandon, I'll introduce you as well. Brandon is currently the Chief of Staff and Head of Events for Bitcoin Magazine and Bitcoin the Bitcoin Conference. Brandon's been at Bitcoin Magazine for a long time, has some great knowledge on the Bitcoin space, and has also written a really excellent and interesting piece on, uh, you know, if Bitcoin may be our best hope for interacting with alien civilizations, kind of riffing off of the whole, you know, storming Area 51 craze that was taking place within the last few years. It's always a fun one to read. I'll get that up in the next shortly. But yeah, I guess, Matt, if you wouldn't mind just offering a bit more of your background to how you became interested in both, you know, physics and philosophy, and then maybe why Bitcoin kind of fit the mold for both of those as you kind of have made, made, your, made waves in this space. Yeah, thanks for having me. So yeah, I was a physics nerd growing up. I always thought I was going to be a physicist. And so went to a university to study physics. What really attracted me to physics was actually kind of like the more fundamental questions. And so I did another major in philosophy to try to get at some of those deeper questions. But as you know, as you grow up, you realize, you know, maybe academic life isn't the profession that, that you thought it was when you're you know, a teenager. So I, I still like physics and philosophy, but I sort of did a pivot away from kind of the academic track and did a master's over in London to kind of stall for time and then really sort of came back to DC, did a two year fellowship at the National Science Foundation, essentially supported a cluster of programs helping the government make research grants across all of economics, as well as sort of decision risk and management science is kind of like game theory, behavioral economics, as well as kind of science and organization. So like most, most like business school research. And that kind of got me more deeper into kind of questions of applied economic philosophy and thinking through kind of these these larger questions. So kind of prime me for Bitcoin. That was like you know, 12 years ago. So I was certainly not paying too much attention to it at the at the, at the time of the white paper, but, but sort of then sort of went into national security consulting. So I've been a consultant for 10 years, really on the government side. So helping the government think through kind of tail risks. And as part of that, assessing kind of emerging technology as being a consultant, working in the government space, you kind of jump around from project to project. So I was able to do kind of lots of different interesting things. But after sort of 10 years of being a consultant for the government, kind of got tired of that that aspect of things. And then, yeah, shifted last year to more private sector consulting, I joined the Krebs Stamos Group and became the director of security intelligence for them. And so we help advise mostly multinationals at the intersection of sort of geopolitical and technology risk. So sort of we, we have a, a cadre of experts, both on kind of the, the technical cybersecurity side of things, as well as kind of the geopolitical threat intelligence side of things, as well as kind of more strategic management consulting. So that's my day job. But I also have like a pretty intense sort of side intellectual interest and policy interest in Bitcoin. So I've been a affiliated with the Bitcoin Policy Institute for about a year now. So Grant McCarthy and David Zell reached out to me when they were sort of standing that up. And they thought that they could create kind of a, a unique venue for more thoughtful research and analysis on some of these really tricky policy questions that Bitcoin brings up. And, and my background kind of you know, gave me some, some perspective on sort of the intersection of Bitcoin and national security, and in particular, kind of these larger questions of Kind of geopolitics and the evolution of, of sort of the global economic and political system over the next, you know, five, 10 years. So I do some writing and research on, on those questions. Those are much more strategic and kind of macro. My day job is, you know, as a consultant, it's solving specific sort of corporate problems. And so, yeah, just try to sort of mix and match. But obviously today, if you follow my Twitter feed, I, I, I sort of, I like to sample the sort of intellectual parameter space. And I like to think and write about lots of sort of weird things that I think are interesting. And so Twitter is my space to kind of think in public on, on lots of those types of topics. So I like to, you know, can dig into all that stuff. Awesome. Sounds good. Yeah, thanks for, for that background. And then also, Brandon, I'd like, like to toss it over to you. I noticed something in your background is that you have a Bachelor's of Science in Chemical Engineering from the University of Alabama. And I, I thought that was just kind of an interesting transition that you've seen to have made over to this kind of monetary technology side of things and media side working with Bitcoin Magazine and the Bitcoin Conference. So I'd be curious to hear like what your interests were initially 
and maybe how you see those interacting with Bitcoin, if at all. Yeah, sure. You know, the first thing I'll say is the University of Alabama low-key has a little bit of a mafia in the Bitcoin space, partially driven by Bitcoin Magazine. But, you know, Matt mentioned Zelle and Grant. They're both Bama alum, as well as David Tyler, who are the co-founders of David Bailey and Tyler Evans, who are co-founders of Bitcoin Magazine. So, you know, we've got a few other folks from the, the university kind of interspersed throughout the space. So, you know, a good little cohort coming from there. Maybe there's some some something overlapping with Bitcoin and a little roll tide energy, who knows. But so anyway, you know, the, the short on me is uh, I graduated back in 2017, went straight into the Bitcoin space, kind of stumbled into it, didn't know anything about it. I learned from David Bailey, you know, for the past, I guess, five plus, five and a half, almost coming up on six years. So yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's been a wild ride working in the space this long, definitely have watched it ebb and flow and grow probably 10 to 20x what it was when I first entered, even over 20x. So yeah, I mean, it's been a pretty crazy ride. You know, I would say the, the quick thing on just like the chemical engineering side is, you know, it's the way of thinking. It's a schema of how you kind of look, take knowledge, dissect it and, you know, build up kind of hypotheses around that knowledge or, you know, structure kind of thinking. And so in a lot of ways, like, you know, chemical engineering taught me literally nothing about Bitcoin, but it taught me a way by which you can examine it and, and start to, you know, figure it out. So that's the, the shout out I'll give to the engineering background. And there's a lot of engineers in the space. It's not a coincidence. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. And, and I think something that's caught my eye with Bitcoin is the interdisciplinary interdisciplinary nature of it draws upon so many fields from computer science to law, philosophy, economics, game theory, and even just kind of the provision of energy. So it'd be kind of like the applied, maybe political economy of things. And for me, that's been one of the my favorite parts of going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole is I get to engage all of these disparate areas that I have interest in and try to make sense of all of them. And so I'm really excited to have both of you on here today to maybe help do that and get a little bit speculative, perhaps cosmic here on Cosmic Bitcoin. And yeah, I guess before we do that, I, I just would be curious to hear what your experience was like in trying to understand Bitcoin. And for me personally, it took quite a few touches before I even began to take it seriously. And I've found over time that it kind of requires, you know, a willingness to be, to exist outside of the mainstream or to be in opposition to prevailing opinion. I mean, if everyone, you know, understood and, and you know, did the work on Bitcoin, perhaps we'd be a little bit further along in adoption. So I think it's safe to say that we're perhaps early to the, to the whole Bitcoin story. So Matthew, I guess you're a bit more within kind of the perhaps institutional mainstream, given your work. And I'd be curious to hear, you know, how that is existing in that space. And if, you know, if you talk about Bitcoin in that context of your professional work at all, or if that's more something that you try to keep separate and kind of like how it's been navigating that. Yeah, I mean, so certainly, I guess, like day to day, like my, my professional, you know, domain is basically cybersecurity risks and threat actors at the state and at the nation state level. And so, you know, Bitcoin is sort of, I'd say, ancillary to that sort of direct question. I mean, we're not advising our clients on sort of Bitcoin reserve strategies or anything like that. But but I, the way I sort of bridge the two is really through kind of what I think to your, to your original point about the sort of multiple just multiple disciplinary kind of perspective that Bitcoin forces you to take in order to try to understand and understand, you know, broader implications is, you know, these larger geopolitical monetary forces, right? And so that's, I think, the, inter the interconnection between kind of my day job in terms of trying to understand the global picture, sort of the emerging trends and, and sort of stresses in the global system. And, and you know, Bitcoin is, is emerging as a sort of a novel and 
kind of complicated new variable in that very complex, almost irreducibly complex global system. And so I try to understand Bitcoin just from a professional perspective, understand, you know, if I'm looking ahead to the next five, 10 years, and I think in terms of scenarios, I think this is a, an important scenario to sort of put into that sort of Bayesian tree to understand the implications and to sort of try to think around those corners to you know, minimize strategic surprise. So that's kind of the, the, the professional kind of take I have on thinking through Bitcoin and sort of the relevance for, you know, decisions that you may take at a strategic level over the you know, next five or 10 years, you know, if you're trying to, you know, think through these these different scenarios. But Bitcoin itself, you know, forces you to, you know, get, like actually understand it. It's, it's, it's a very complicated, both sort of technology stack, especially if you're not, you know, as technically minded, it can be kind of intimidating to understand, you know, the kind of the different aspects of its protocol design and why it's designed the way it was designed and sort of reach back through different, different sort of intellectual strains in economic history and sort mm -hmm. of even social, anthro social anthropology. And so, yeah, you can, Sort of, sort of refract a number of different domains through Bitcoin if you want. If you want to take sort of a broader sociological, anthropological, philosophical, sort of economic history lens, you can take that. If you want to just look at sort of, you know, sort of computation and cryptography and peer-to-peer -peer systems, you can take that perspective. And, that, you know, each one of those domains is itself, you know, a rich literature, right? An academic literature, you know, a, a sort of a deep intellectual heritage that, that if you really want to try to grok this thing that we call Bitcoin, you really have to try to get your arms around it. And that's just to try to understand its history and where it is, you know, then trying to project forward, right? <laughs> then, you're, then you're throwing in you know, a whole bunch of other dynamics, right? So if your premise is Bitcoin succeeds, you know, by whatever definition of success you have, well, then you have to assume it's going to start to interact with these existing systems, right? Existing political systems at the nation, state, and international level, level sort of geopolitical balances of power and the relationship between those balances of power and, and sort of associated monetary dynamics that have emerged in the past 70 years. So yeah, there's a lot that Bitcoin, if you take it seriously, you know, forces you to reckon with and sort of you know, always, always forces you to understand like how much you really don't understand. Yeah, it definitely can be a humbling experience trying to wrap your, your arms around it, but certainly a gratifying one nonetheless, at least for, for myself and I'm, I'm sure many others. Brandon, if, if you have anything to add there, like how... How has, how has Bitcoin impacted you as you've tried to understand it? I know you said you came from a chemical engineering background, came to Bitcoin with somewhat of a limited understanding and obviously have learned immense amounts along the way. And is there anything in particular that's really caught your eye in the space as being like particularly rich ground for, you know, maybe understanding the technology, but also understanding maybe your interests and like what has really sparked you about it? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the thing that I'll just quickly say is if you are in this Twitter space and you've never sent a Bitcoin transaction on chain or over lightning, then you haven't had the real light bulb moment yet because Bitcoin can be cool in concept and theory. There's tons of ways, like Matt already said, that it intersects all these different disciplines. But until you've literally played with it and you've seen kind of that power of just like, I just sent money from one place to another and didn't ask anyone for permission. It, it really, it's, it's hard to just articulate how much of a concept, a, a new paradigm it is and, and how it kind of dawns on you. So, you know, most of what I've learned in this space has been via a hands-on, you know, tinkering and, you know, it, it makes a difference. So that, that's all I'll say to that. My fellow plebs, come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from Miami 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLive to get 10% off your tickets before prices go up.
plebs. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, then you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's a free and a paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts, Dylan LeClaire, Dr. Jeff Ross, and Sam Rule break down what's going on in the market so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. Matt, to your point about trying to understand the future of, of technology like this and, and as almost impossible of a task as that is, I think people in the Bitcoin space or at least Bitcoin advocates have a sense that there is something really meaningful with this technology and what it can do for humanity. And I kind of want to start transitioning us now into perhaps something a bit more speculative, but something that people might be familiar with as well, which is kind of this idea between exponentially scaling information technologies, whether that be the internet or there's generally our ability to manipulate genes and kind of the exponentially improving nature of those technologies, a la Ray Kurzweil, who has his so-called singularity hypothesis. And, and to me, like this kind of pairs really nicely with kind of Jeff Booth's work, where he talks about how technology is a deflationary force. We're able to get more for less over time. And as Bitcoin allows for this deep natural deflation to take place, we may see absolutely, you know, unprecedented, maybe a strong word, but surprising gains in productivity and our ability to deliver goods and information to people at, at very, very low cost. So Matt, I know you have a bit of an interest in, in artificial intelligence, things like AGI as well, but I guess I'll just start by by asking uh, both of you guys, like if you have any perspective on what the nature of technology is as it relates to kind of these exponentially scaling systems, and then also what, to what degree do you see that being valid uh, as a, a long-term trajectory, and, and how do you see Bitcoin interacting with kind of the larger technological forces at play? And happy to break that down. I know that that, that was a bit of a mouthful there, but <laughs> the floor is yours. Yeah, no, and these are, you know, immensely complex questions. And, you know, you could write multiple PhD theses trying to, you know, unpack, you know, individual aspects of them. So I guess I'd start with, you know, just to kind of question the premise, right? So one, we're trying to examine the future, right? I think it's important, one, not to anchor too much on a, on a particular trend or a particular technology that that we may, you know, like, that, that they, they may loom, loom large in our present imagination. Like, I think the history of technology has been, you know, one of kind of part projection and prediction and part, you know, unanticipated surprise and disruptive rupture. And so I try not to anchor too much on what we know today and sort of extrapolate along, you know, any curve, whether it's a linear or an exponential uh, into the future, and then to sort of project forward, well, what does society look like in that imagined future state where, you know, these curves have reached, you know, some some asymptote. And and I think it's a nice story. And I think it's, you know, good sort of in the physics terminology, like a good Gedanken experiment, right, a good thought experiment to imagine these sort of alternative schemas for sort of social orders where you sort of take certain things to the limit, right? In physics, you take things to the limit and you sort of examine what that lim what that limiting behavior is. And that's a, like a useful exercise. But I'm sort of also like someone who understands like the messiness of social reality and like the hysteresis of, 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 of human society. And so I try not to be too confident about just taking a few trends and like, you know, jumping 30 years into the future and saying, you know, this is what the, the, the state of things is going to look like. So that's just like my first like intellectual caveat, right? But just to address the question more directly, you know, these two trends that you point out, one kind of the rapid in increase in kind of what computing as a, both the technology, but also as like an intellectual framework has sort of given humanity is sort of, 
you know, increasing returns to lower input costs, right? And that is, you know, generally speaking, a productivity enhancing force, you know, all, you know, sort of ceteris paribus. And that means that, you know, you get more for less, right? To, to, to take the Jeff Booth thesis, right? Which is inherently deflationary. And yeah, I think that's a correct sort of analysis of the interaction between those two specific forces. There are other things, though, that, you know, I think you need to consider if you're trying to like map out, right, what what societies could look like and what like the net effect of, of different disruptions, you know, could could manifest as right. And, you know, inherently we are we're not in silico, right? We are we are biological creatures, right? We, we rely on physical inputs. We rely on you know, matter and energy being, being transformed into, you know, like useful consumables. (laughs) And, you know, like you have to assume that we don't reach any sort of critical scarcities or choke points in those sort of raw physical inputs to human society, right? So like computers aren't the all all end all of, of how human societies functions. And so we're certainly not exponentially producing more food. We're certainly not exponentially producing the net energy return on, on energy invested. And so, you know, I try not to Again, like how these things uh, interact, right, uh, is, is a good question. Like you can imagine optimistic scenarios where increasing sort of computing capabilities sort of free up human labor to in- invent, you know, novel, in- even more productive enhancing technologies that allow us to, again, satisfy our, our wants and needs without you know, any any sort of marginal increase in in sort of energy resources. Like I, bottom line, I kind of come down to this, this might tee off in the many more speculative sort of areas is that technology is ultimately downstream of physics. And like we are, you know, currently trying to essentially maximally exploit the known physics that, that we have, you know, within our toolkit, right? And so the, the known physics that we've been able to sort of really nail down, right, is basically the stuff that we figured out pre-World War II, general relativity and quantum mechanics. And then we, you know, we did some tweaks to it in the sort of post-war years. So we sort of figured out how to complete the standard model, quantum field theory. And then, you know, we sort of started to, you know, map out the standard model sort of particle zoo. But at that point, really, we started to lose any useful technology, right? So the main technologies that we still use today are kind of anchored on the physics breakthroughs that we that we made back in the 20s and 30s, right? So quantum mechanics, right, is what underpins, you know, integrated circuits and general relativity is sort of how we understand, you know, how to correct for, you know, clock dilation when we have sort of GPS in, in orbit. So we don't really use, you know, general relativity that much. And nuclear physics, obviously, we've sort of cracked the atom and we have, you know, nuclear weapons and, uh, and, and nuclear reactors. But we haven't really like gotten much further in terms of our fundamental physics understanding. And so if you think of like the way I think about it is like the, uh, the, the, the space of all possible technology is really bounded by the space of, 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 of the rules of physics, right? The rules of physics describe the sort of degrees of freedom they have access to in the physical universe. And technology is, you know, how you can configure the matter and energy available to you to exploit those degrees of freedom. And so until we really make fundamental breakthroughs in physics, I sort of see us hitting, you know, some sort of limit in, in what we can, you know, achieve with technology. So I try. So I'm not really a subscriber to the Croeswellian idea of there being a singularity. I think you could have, you know, exponential improvements, you know, up to a point, right? The question is where that point is. And everyone has debates over, you know, Moore's law and, you know, how much, how many more tokens can we, you know, put packed into these large language models like ChatGPT, and then dot dot dot, you know, in ten years we're going to have, you know, an artificial sort of super intelligence. So I did write a whole book, a fiction novel, to try to explore these questions, you know, in a more kind of, yeah, like a fictional setting about, you know, quantum computing and, and artificial superintelligence. And it's a, it's a fun romp, but I'm actually inherently a skeptic about artificial superintelligence, even though I'm very bullish on sort of narrow AI, narrow AI tools. So this is me sort of rambling down to the question of like the future of, of those specific technologies, I think could still have a very dramatic impact on 
human economies and human societies, even if they don't result in this singularity scenario, right? Or this emergence of some super intelligent AI that that we need to work really hard right now to make sure that its its goals are instrumentally aligned with our goals. And that's the so-called sort of alignment problem for AI um, that is certainly occupying a lot of uh, folks in Silicon Valley as they've seen kind of the recent explosion of improvements with these large language models in the past year. And those are going to continue. I think you're going to see a whole bunch of you know new chat GPT-like things come out this year that will generate a lot of buzz and you know fuel this kind of say fervor about kind of the, the path of these technologies. I tend to, I tend when I see that, I tend to want to pump the brakes a bit. And I'm also quite, I don't know, I'm a little bit concerned. In my novel, I actually kind of like, well, I developed these two kind of groups that I thought were, you know, complete satire. But what are the groups called? Yeah, so they're, they're, they're the creeps, the Committee for the Research of Emerging Existential Problems, and the fuckers. So the post-human cosmic endowment research signicate. So it's a it's a hard C. And 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 and, and I won't give away the plot. But basically, the idea is the 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 creeps are you know they're basically dueling. They're they're two dueling cults started by two tech founders that you know used to be best bro- brothers and then became estranged. And they basically went to opposite sides of this sort of AI question. And one basically thought that you know we needed to you know avoid creating an AI superintelligence at all costs. Then that might involve going around and you know, sabotaging research projects and assassinating, you know, uh, scientists. Uh, and the other is like, like religiously obsessed about bringing a super AI into an existence as essentially the cosmic endowment for humanity that like the destiny of humanity is to give birth to this super AI computational intelligence who will, you know, rapidly expand away from earth and in sort of this, you know, like create Dyson spheres and, you know, create, you know, convert all available matter and its future light cone to sort of computronium and, and that, you know, humanity's, you know, indelible imprint on, on the cosmos will, will be carried by this, uh, by this sort of God child that we give birth to. And yeah, and, and I thought that was like completely fictional, like craziness to come up with that. Those are two like groups. And then recently I've noticed on Twitter, there's been this like emerging, like real ideological movement that goes under the banner of effective accelerationism. And so it basically combines, you know, kind of the, the, the land, the recently lampooned effective altruist sort of philosophical school of that, that Sam Bakeman Freed famously, you know, pledged his, his, his moral loyalty to, which was all that sort of, it's like a rebranding of it's kind of like bare utilitarianism, right? We need to maximize essentially, you know, like welfare. And, and that and if you believe, you know, that, uh, that there's nothing special about human consciousness, and that you can essentially reproduce human consciousness in silico. And if we can create a artificial super intelligence that is, you know, conscious by definition, then maximizing the sort of expansion of that computational intelligence is like the overriding moral good, if that or moral obligation. So if you can bring the date by which that super conscious AI is created forward, you are you are sort of like that is the maximal possible good that you could do. And there's like people who believe this now, seriously, and people that work in Silicon Valley who believe this. And it's going under sort of this, this sort of, you know, it's, it's starting, starting off kind of somewhat sardonic and now becoming like all internet memes, right? The actual serious thing. So anyways, that's like a, that's a little bit of a side, a side thing. But, it, but this, this is sort of where I go with this question of AI and technology is that th- I, I try to think through the, the path dependence here, right? Like these things are happening in, in a society that is not the sort of blank slate sort of in physics, you like assume a spherical cow, right? And so you, you, you assume, okay, that doesn't have appendages, it doesn't need to eat or feed, and you can just sort of like, you know, model it by the center of mass. And I just think that, that that's what, that's the approach you can take with these technologies and human society. And it's, that's where I'm, I'm cautious about going too far into the, into the future with those things. But 
I'll, I'll stop there. I've been rambling for quite a while. So. No, that was awesome. Thanks for sharing. And and I think a thread that I found pretty interesting in there is this idea of whether or not we can like completely model or create a, a super intelligence given our understanding of how physics works at a fundamental level. And I think the thread I want to pull mm-hmm. on is, you know, where do you stand on, on what it means to be perhaps I may be conflating intelligence and consciousness here, but it seems as though there may mm-hmm. not be a fundamental like physical aspect that is consciousness. It may be something, you know, non-materialistic. And I know I've seen you on Twitter talking a little bit about things like panpsychism or integrated information theory. Mm-hmm. And it seems as though you're a little bit sympathetic to this idea of consciousness being this kind of assumption that that is made given that, you know, the universe exists. And then it, you know, I, I may not be able to articulate this as deeply as I'd like, <laughs> but I think that, that's a really interesting thread is like this kind of battle between materialist and non-materialist worldviews as in trying to understand like what is happening in the universe you know are things is is it a clockwork clockwork universe or is there some aspect of like unknowability to what it means to experience the world so yeah i mean feel free to riff riff Mm -hmm. on anything that piqued your interest there yeah i I would sort of call myself a a proto-panpsychist and i sort of try to draw the thread between some early 20th century philosophers alfred north whitehead and bertrand russell so bertrand russell sort of known for the school of neutral monism alfred north whitehead is a much more kind of baroque and somewhat turgid philosophical uh sort of framework in process and reality is there his his book i don't don't recommend people trying to read that one it's basically yeah 500 pages of like made up words but it gets to this idea of, of 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 this question right so what is when we think about like an ontology, right? And, you know, there's a lot of philosophers associated with Bitcoin policy institutes, so I'll probably stay, you know, I'm doing some intellectual trespassing here. But the way that I sort of try to approach, you know, the relationship between physics and philosophy, this sort of what, you know, stimulate a lot of my early kind of intellectual, you know, sort of obsession with those with those topics is really this question of what is physics describing, right? Physics is a is a discipline. It's a set of it's a set of rules that we try to discover that 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 the world that we observe apparently operates according to. And but the that when you actually dig into physics, right? So physics, you know, postulates a number of entities, right? So particles as like a fundamental entity. And it says, you know, according to current best understanding of physics, there's like two fundamental types of particles, quarks and leptons, and there's different forces. And those forces can be modeled sort of both as particles, but also as fields. So in quantum field theory, you know, there's essentially three fundamental forces, the strong, the weak, and the, and the weak force. And so you have, you know, kind of this, this ontology, but it doesn't really tell you like what that is. Like, like an electron is a carrier of these properties, right? So an electron is a carrier of, and it's only really purely defined by like these numbers, right? Mass, spin, and charge. It doesn't really tell you like what mass is. It doesn't just tell you what spin is, what charge is. It just says these are properties that can be modeled mathematically. And, you know, when you model them mathematically and then you make predictions about experiments, those are the, you know, predictions that you, that you, that you confirm. But essentially it's like physics is, a, if you're trying to understand, like if someone gave you a chessboard for the first time and you said, okay, like figure out the the rules of chess. That, that's what, what physicists are trying to do. They're figuring out like, what, is, what are the rules of the game here? And they realize there's like certain, you know, objects. They don't understand like how they were made or what defines them necessarily, but they can sort of test it out and they can try to move them around. And, you know, imagine the board game just didn't let them move in, in, in ways that the rules of chess uh, disallowed. And so you would discover trying to move in certain ways. Oh, I, I can't do that. that. That must be a rule. And so you're uh, you would, you know, kind of discover like what the pattern of constraint was, you know, in, in that, in that, in, in that world. And that's the sort of what we're doing. We're trying to understand what was the pattern of constraint. And that's how I sort of try to bridge physics and 
And consciousness is really trying to think through what we mean by constraint. So like underneath physics, and this is going to go really deep, but underneath physics really is, the, is a sort of metaphysics of causation, right? So what does it mean for something to change? How can any object in principle like exert an effect on another object? What do we mean by an object you know, at all? And and this this is, you know, an un, unresolved question. So I don't have like a definitive answer if I did, you know, that would presume some sort of godlike view on the world. But I have sort of a mental sort of framework to try to bridge these these big problems, right? So there's two big problems I think we can solve collectively with some something like protopanpsychism. So one problem is the problem of, of causation, which is why is there a pattern of constraint? You can imagine in principle, there's two different kinds of worlds you could live in. You can model like two different paint canvases. So like imagine one paint canvas where it just lets you paint with whatever color, wherever you want. And so you can pick up any paint color and, you know, throw it down and splotch it and create sort of anything you want. Imagine another paint canvas where you put down one color and you discover trying to put down a different color next to it that the paint just sort of doesn't stick. It bounces off. And then you realize, oh, actually, a different color will actually stick. And you just experiment by putting different colors and every color you add, you know, further constrains what other colors you can add. And the net result is some pattern that, that emerges. And you would look at that canvas and say, there's something weird about that canvas relative to the other canvas. And that, that I think, is the problem we have with that's like a deeper problem than like what's the correct theory of physics, it's why is there a set of rules at all for reality? And that's the problem of, of, of causation, right? Why is there a, an apparent constraint to what can exist at any given moment, right? Why are there law-like regularities that we call physics, you know, rules? And so that problem of causation, I think you can sort of match up with this problem of consciousness by doing this kind of metaphysical sort of model building that there's a book called A Place for Consciousness by Greg Rosenberg. I really like his approach, which really tries to basically look at, okay, there's basically two fundamental things in reality. There's sort of effective properties and receptive properties. And effective properties are, you know, those properties that, that, that carry the effect from, from sort of one basic existent. You have to postulate something basic. So someone wants some basic existent to another basic existent. And so that's like the, that's the set of effective properties that we sort of think about as, uh, as physics. So you could call them you know, mass spin and charge, some sort of nexus of like basic physical properties. And then you have to have, you know, the capacity to receive those effective properties. So you can call it like receptivity. And you can sort of model what sort of properties that receptivity property has to have. And you get to something that seems like, like sort of proto-consciousness, right? Sort of a unified field that integrates information and that acts as sort of a, a, a a binder, right, to a certain extent. This is getting extremely abstract, but th this is just like a, a, a very basic level sort of model of causation that I think gives you something like an account of proto-panpsychism. There's sort of a, a big remaining, you know, intellectual task, which is how do you build up from that like very basic primitive foundational view to something like higher order conscious minds like us, right? And so you have to sort of, you know, assume that there's there's a much more complicated, like more physics related story that tells you how you know, information processing in these physical systems, you know, essentially, you know, merges what is already, you know, there in root reality as, as conscious sort of ingredients into sort of higher and more complex sort of fields of awareness. And, and yeah, so that's the, but then you can get into side topics of what, what does that mean for free will? The, what I actually find is really interesting is a question that, that bring that gets sort of get brought, gets brought up in sort of theoretical physics discussions is sort of what do we think of space-time as? Because this approach, in my view, kind of requires time to be more fundamental than, than space. So I have somewhat of a somewhat of a strong, but I guess I could be convinced otherwise, but the view that, that time is more fundamental than space. And, and, and I've really become really interested in some of the efforts by, by Stephen Wolfram and some of his collaborators and some folks that have sort of gone off from his, his research program and you know, spun it in different ways 
And uh, so we're sort of this idea of, you know, emerging, emergent space from much more discrete, almost like, like purely abstract points, right? So you can model them as like hypergraphs. So like a hypergraph is just a, like a network with, you know, nodes and edges. And if you just start with like nodes and edges and you have rules that tell you how to rewrite that network. So you have a, a graph that has directed edges and you said like, oh, okay, like there's, there's a rule that says if this is connected to this in such a way, the rule tells you cut this edge and replace it with this edge at a point over here. And if you just like start running those rules, you know, very simple rules like that, you can actually get to networks at like, you know, very large scales that, that you can basically do physics. So you can sort of reproduce modern physics from, you can get like dimensionality out of these, you know, very, very abstract kind of purely combinatorial structures and not to like lose everyone, but, uh, but there's a really compelling kind of much more, this is like on the fringes of research right now, which is if you think about the, the set of those rules that, that, that hypergraph, you know, can can take, like you can examine the set of those rules itself as a space. And that has, that has certain mathematical properties that, um, that are actually, uh, this goes into something called a sort of homotopy type theory and higher order category theory. And there's a you know, mathematician named that uh, has done a lot of work back in the middle 20th century that's being sort of rediscovered now of like these sort of like infinite categories of categories of categories. And what is that, what is that sort of infinite? What if you like stack all these abstract categories all the way up to infinity? Like what is the infinite category? You go like a, an infinity groupoid or an infinity topos. And it actually has a spatial structure. And there's a, something called the Grothendieck hypothesis. Like his foundational hypothesis is that, that that infinity groupoid is a topological space. So essentially, you know, there's a paper by Jonathan Garrard that basically does this mathematics where sort of, this the set of all possible rules that could describe all possible physics that's that the, the space that describes all those possible rules is itself a space and may actually be our space and then it gets, brings up the question of well actually well we don't actually see all those possible rules we only see you know the set of rules that we observe in you know when we do our physics experiments why do we only see you know a, a, a certain subset of all possible rules and this really requires like a theory of the observer right where the observer is is a is a has to be modeled in those systems and it's essentially slicing this higher order space and the sort of foliations of this higher order space is is the sort of physical reality that we exist in and if you put constraints on what that observer you know how you model the observer if the model if the if you model the observer as it has to have a co consistent causal history right it has to have a linear sense of time and cr uh, crucially it has bounded computational capacity then you get essentially the physics that that conscious, the physics that that observer sees uh, has to basically obey basically general relativity and quantum mechanics. Basically, like you get like the physics that we see is the physics you would expect to see coming from this very abstract kind of direction. So that is going like really down the rabbit hole on advanced sort of theoretical physics. The way that actually sort of to kind of connect it back to Earth a bit here is, you know, like fundamentally, I think we need to focus a lot more on fundamental physics as a society than almost anything else, right? Like, I think we are, we're so obsessed with technology and AI, I think because we've been kind of like our generation and our parents' generation has like not really witnessed fundamental breakthroughs in physics, right? We've sort of forgotten this is like a thing, but if you actually go back to like the early parts of the 20th century, right? Like, and even before that, obviously, but like we were making foundational breakthroughs of like our understanding of physical reality, like every 15, 20 years. And then we were unlocking like, breakthrough technologies, right? Like electromagnetism. Oh, great. But how we can actually, you know, do generators. We can have, you know, we can electrify societies. We figured out quantum mechanics and then we figured out, you know, the atom and then we developed bombs and integrated circuits and computer chips. Like these things are foundational to human society. But actually, I think we've sort of stalled in physics since the 70s. And I'm sort of with Eric Weinstein on this a bit where, you know, for lots of sociological explanations and maybe you could even explain you know, like the WTF 1971 hypothesis that, you know, the, like the money broke this. I think it's, 
I think it's multi-causal. But uh, yeah, physics has kind of installed for the past 50 years. And I think as a culture, we've kind of forgotten about the importance of physics and how if you make a breakthrough in physics like that, that is the, that's the game, right? That, that's what it's all about. Because if you can unlock essentially a new degree of freedom, like that makes sort of these like, you know, chat GPT like gizmos, I think irrelevant, may not irrelevant, but uh, makes them, makes them seem more like toys. So that, that's where if I'm, if I'm a Bitcoiner and I'm sitting on a, on a big, on a big heavy bag, right? I think like, now I'm thinking in terms of like a, a quasi utilitarian manner, right? Like investing in heterodox physics research is probably where you have the biggest bang for the buck for, for the long-term future of humanity. And that, and that might be the good segue to UAPs. We'll see. Yeah, no, I think we're definitely well on our way there. That was fascinating for sure. And I think I would just like to pull on that thread a little bit more of like kind of this institutional structure of physics research. I mean, to, to kind of refer to your WTF happened in 1971, shout out. I mean, it seems to be that if we break this coordinating mechanism for humans to collectively act at scale. In, in, in this way, we would essentially reduce our ability to generate a form of collective intelligence. It would only seem to reason that we would reach false or misleading conclusions or go down dead ends and not really be able to navigate the space of possibilities adequately by combining all of our perspectives in the most optimal way. And it seems that like Bitcoin as an information technology, I was speaking with Aaron Segal a couple of weeks ago on the show. He talks about Bitcoin information theory through this kind of Shinonian information lens. But it seems to me that there might be something really interesting to pull on here is like, how does Bitcoin direct our actions or how does money direct our actions? And then how might Bitcoin, you know, help us optimize our limited time and energy in, in kind of this resource optim optimization aspect? Like, is there anything that you see there as, you know, there is mm -hmm. kind of been a, a form of capture of you know, goal-directed research by <clears throat> institutions? And is there anything that we can do? Perhaps this relates to your your understanding of geopolitics in a way too is there anything we can do to kind of break mm -hmm. this this dead end or, or stalemate Oof, it's, it's tough I, I think there's there's gonna be explanation so like one explanation might be it's just really hard to find the next physics right like we're sort of in a, a dark room and we, you know, we were put there and we didn't know where any of the walls were and then we sort of groped around and we found one wall and then we found another wall and we're like okay we know the space is like bounded over here and then we start going off in the other direction. And you just don't know if the wall is gonna like smack you in the face or whether you're gonna be walking for years and years and years. And so like, that's just like, that's what it means. That's where we are is like, you know, epistemic agents kind of wandering around trying to, you know, bump into the rules of, of reality that, that we can discern. And they might, you know, require just like access to energy scales that we just can't technologically get to, to, to run experiments. Like we're just sort of in this rut basically. And that's like a, that's like a depressing stare. Like some people just think like, we're just like, we got, we got as far as we can get and we're just going to have to like make do, right? Like this kind of a pessimistic idea. Right? There's no guarantee that we're going to, there's no guarantee, I guess, in principle that like agents like us bounded in the universe, like, you know, necessarily can get to kind of a maximal understanding of what those rules are, right? I guess I'm an optimist. I think we've got to keep trying. And, and this is where like UAPs might be interesting kind of proof of concept, right? Like if those things did exist and I did demonstrate advanced technology, it sort of was a proof of concept that there's physics that, 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 uh, that we don't know that someone figured out. So like, you know, it's kind of like, okay, well, let's go, go, let's go figure out what they figured out. But back to your question, like the institutional and kind of maybe economic incentive system, right? And, you know, Eric Weinstein has a whole thesis on this that I, I kind of, I kind of agree with, right? And it goes to like a lot of things, right? Which is when you have a successful, you know, discipline, like physics became like super successful, right? And could have coasted on the growth of kind of the state bureaucratic system post-World War II, 
that was really successful in winning World War II, right? Like we created these massive vertically integrated bureaucratic control structures to fight and win World War II. That's what you kind of had to do, right? Was basically marshal all the resources of a continent to project power across the globe to defeat another kind of industrial power that was also similarly trying to coordinate and marshal those resources. So you had to, you know, and you had to fight a war, you know, wars of central planning, but sort of like par excellence. <laughs> and and that, that legacy kind of hung over for the you know the next 20, 30 years after World War II. But we, and, and physics, physicists, you know, were kind of the, kind of the, the stars of the show, right? We, 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 you know, physicists won the war, right? They invented the bomb and then they invented the transistor and then rockets and space. And it was just kind of like, yeah, like that's, that's the place to be. And those people basically, you know, built institutions that structured, that were structured around like keeping themselves, you know, in power. And when you have systems like that over time, like they start off innovative, they start off when you sort of have institutional, I think a typical path of any institutional development, right? Usually it gets stimulated in a moment of crisis and either, you know, there's an urge to create a new institution or reform an existing institution. And there's a lot of like sort of crisis driven need and energy to do that. And resources get dedicated and, you know, you figure something out and then you build something new and that thing is then successful. And it's usually optimized for that particular moment in time, that certain sort of socio and political context. And then it succeeds. And then because it succeeds, it's got, you know, institutional power and power means it likes to protect itself and endure and keep itself in power over time. And this is not just, you know, this is the same story you see in sort of institutional physics as you see play out in lots of sort of 20th century Western institutions, but, but they start to, you know, maybe lose the, lose the oomph, right? They start the, the innovator's dilemma kicks in, right? They, they start to not have the sort of need to innovate or question the, their own assumptions or break the rules that they forged themselves, sort of that would undermine the prerogatives that keep them in power and the institutional prestige that, that comes from that. And, and yeah, and then you get to this pattern of kind of institutional, you might call it drift, and then ultimately institutional decay. And unfortunately, I think that's a period we're in right now where the institutions that dominate sort of Western society were really successful and they were sort of necessary to build, you know, by fact of circumstance in the middle of the 20th century. And then they sort of reached the zenith, I think, in the kind of the, you know, 80s and 90s, you could you could argue. And then the world, you know, changes, technology changes, you know, things just evolve. And there's both like endogenous decay to those institutional systems, as well as exogenous stressors that continue to place, you know, more and more, you know, strain on, on those, on those systems. And I think that's where like lots of, lots, lots of institutions are not just, not, not just physics. I think that's where, you know, the, the bubbling dissatisfaction that you see across all the, all domains. I think like Bitcoiners are particularly a manifestation of, of one domain where the sort of existing monetary and economic institutions, you know, we see those as sort of following that particular pattern. And, and there's a, you know, this energy to sort of build a, a new institution, kind of this, you know, using the technologies and sort of cultural ethos that pervades, uh, you know, our, our, our current moment. Yeah, really well said. And I think it, it will be interesting to see like what types of investment Bitcoin yields down the line. I know yield, obviously a dirty word in the Bitcoin space, but I think you guys get what I'm saying is like, how are we going to direct resources on a different monetary standard where we don't have this form of seniorage where we can fund unproductive or unprofitable ventures. And hopefully we can try to direct our resources, our limited resources in a way that will actually unlock benefits for us down the road. But now I think might be a good time to kind of venture over into the UAP space. And Brandon, I know you have a piece in Bitcoin Magazine kind of unpacking a bit of your interest in kind of, you know, potential contact with aliens in, you know, with relevance to Area 51. But yeah, I would just be curious, Brandon, first of all, like, what interested, what interests you about kind of this tangent of aliens or, or UAPs or things that we don't understand how they got here? And then also maybe if you could just give like a quick recap of like, why you think Bitcoin may be able to interact with, you know, these other forms of intelligence, you know, you, you make the point that like, 
you know, they might laugh at us if, you know, we try to tell them that we have, you know, seven people in a room decide the cost of capital for 8 billion people all at once. And that's just how we do things. So yeah, we'd just be curious, like, if you could give us a, a bit of a rundown on your piece. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of have two things. I want to go back to what we were talking about just really briefly as well. But I think broadly talking about the, the article I wrote is a little bit laughable when you've got someone like Matthew Pines up on stage here. So it's probably not worth lingering on it too much. The The main crux of it was it was around the, the time that, you know, there was the meme of Gen Zers all Naruto running into Area 51. And, you know, I, I took the hypothetical of, OK, we'll say they did and rounded a corner and found an alien like then what? And you know, I was just amusingly kind of thinking through like what would happen if you tried to communicate with an alien and like what would they understand? And bits being kind of ones and zeros or yeses and nos to some extent, like, you know, they're base blocks of, of logic. And so, you know, you would need to be able to communicate on a system base of logic. And conveniently, you know, we've built a value system made out of logic at its core, ones and zeros, which is Bitcoin. So, you know, there, there's not a lot of deep thought there. I don't think I want to linger on it. But what I will, what I really quickly want to jump back to, and then I'll throw it over to Pines to really talk about this, is when we're talking about like how Bitcoin fixes some of the, the malincentives, unaligned incentives in kind of academia, you know, the one thing that I'll say, it ends up becoming a reinforcing system in, in a positive sense for Bitcoiners. Because if you think about it, A, if Bitcoin, you know, appreciates in value, that means that the people who got you know, on the Bitcoin train, see their wealth increase. And, and there is a set of kind of characteristics that caused people to fall into the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And those generally stem from heterodox thinking. And so if you think of the fact that like we're basically rewarding folks who were heterodox thinking about the monetary system and value systems, then those are the people most likely to fund other heterodox ideas and other, other systems. And so from that perspective, you would expect like, you know, Bitcoin's rapid appreciation or just like widespread adoption to result in a new science research happening eventually. And then on the flip side, if you see a few Bitcoiners who, who love Bitcoin and are also already in the research space or already in the research funding space, then you'll see the compounded benefits of their research or their money going into research and they will, you know, value that compounded effect in Bitcoin. And so then you'll see Bitcoin's price appreciate because you have people who value Bitcoin who are, you know, creating wealth in other places. So I do think it's actually, you know, Bitcoin kind of creates this, this system by which the, the entire system corrects. So there's my optimistic take on that, but wanted to throw it back to, to Pines and, uh, Maybe, you know, where we start with this is just Pines like UAPs. How do they fit into kind of the heterodox thinking today? And, and you know, how do you see a Bitcoin tie-in? Do you see a Bitcoin tie-in? Yeah, so I guess my first tie-in is really just like a sociological observation in terms of like the, the pattern by which those two topics have, you know, moved in the past number of years. It's been very similar. So, you know, if you rewind the clock five years ago, say 2016, 2017, you know, Bitcoin and UFOs, I think you would, everyone would agree would be on kind of like the, the social fringe, right? Would not be a topic you would just sort of bring up in, in, you know, conversation. If you brought up at Thanksgiving, you'd kind of be looked at with some bug eyes and, you know, just would not be kind of considered, you know, inside the Overton window. And I think what you've seen in the past five years for both Bitcoin and UAPs as a, as a topic of discourse is, is this sort of movement to more of an acceptable kind of mainstream. I think for very different reasons, but I, I have made, made a note of the sort of the odd synchronicity of how those as, as just topics has become 
kind of more salient and more, I guess you quote quote, safe and kind of normy in, in different circles. And, and I, there's like also like a weird synchronicity inside the Congress. So Senator Christian Gillibrand from New York is both is a senator who has you know, been leading the introduction of some of the like crypto legislation with, uh, with Senator Lummis just in the past year or two. And she's also been one of the main drivers behind uh, some of the UAP related legislation with Senator Marco Rubio in the past two years, making these amendments to the National Defense Authorization Act in 2022 and in 2023. So I don't I don't think there's anything like too explicit to connect those two, right? I'm not like pointing to that as like some evidence of some deeper conspiracy that like these are all driven by some deep state hand who's, you know, coordinating these things. Court. I think it's just, I mean, maybe I'm being more speculative, right? It's a, maybe it's a function of the internet and social media and how, you know, these ideas can nucleate in, in, in groups and ideas can be shared and even almost group identities can conform. Like I, I do notice there's also like, for just as a pure matter of sociology, you know, there's a very similar pattern of, kind of um, social media connection, like UAPs, sorry, podcasts, uh, conferences, like if you map that network in terms of how Bitcoin, the Bitcoin social network is structured, at least in the United States or the, in the Anglophone world, like, like there is a Bitcoin Twitter, there are Bitcoin conferences, there are Bitcoin podcasts, there are also UAP conferences, UAP Twitter, UAP podcasts, and there are you know, UAP influencers and Bitcoin influencers. And so, you know, and I think we live in an age where you know, like minority rule to a certain extent, right? Like you can create a strong social movement, like to a certain extent, or at least an ideological kind of coherent grouping that can sort of emerge on social media without like geographical location or much like, you know, top-down organization. And it can be anchored on, again, like there's also like a similar kind of motivating belief system, I think, in both like the Bitcoin and UAP communities, that there is this sort of future denouement that everyone's sort of working towards, right? In Bitcoin, at least in certain subsets of Bitcoin, you know, the sort of eschatology of the canon is hyper-Bitcoinization. Like this is the end state. This is when, you know, real, like the rest of the world who's not necessarily, you know, sees it the way we see it, like will recognize what we recognize now. I think inside the UAP community, you see a very similar psychological orientation towards quote unquote disclosure. This will be, you know, this will be the moment where, you know, the rest of the world will recognize what we recognize. And so, yeah, the, there's a lot, you could go down and sort of the sociological analogies between those two communities. And I think it just, yeah, I think there's probably others like that you could imagine just like what sort of patterns of social organization and belief can be, can be organized and, and kind of proliferate on social media. Like that's, that's not answering the hard question of like, well, is there, 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 right? <laughs> this is what, give the people what they want, man. So yeah, so UAPs, right? It's like, there's a reason it's become, like, isn't just like been like memed into existence, right? Right. Like this has been a phenomenon that U.S. government has been seriously engaging with since World War II. And, and the, this is this is a matter of, uh, you know, public record, like folks can go and look at, you know, the different official programs the US government has set up post World War II. And, you know, the sort of history of the subject is, is long and fraught and often, you know, the subject of, of obsession by people in, in this community. But one thing I would just draw folks attention to is this is being taken very seriously now by very serious people. It had always been taken very seriously by certain serious people inside the US government, but that had been you know, very much occluded from public view. And I think now it's becoming slowly more apparent that, and it's, you know, there's a lot more, more, more overt action being, being taken on this subject. So just like a few concrete things is U.S. government is organizing bureaucratically and publicly to, to examine this stuff. And, you know, I'll go through the whole litany of, of things that have happened since the New York Times article in 2017. But the bottom line is the U.S. government is now has this all-domain resolution office, Arrow, inside the Pentagon, who reports now directly to the Deputy Secretary of Defense. And they have a pretty broad remit to develop a science plan, 
to do investigations, to collect reports, and also set up a, a mechanism for whistleblowers who have maybe had access to non-disclosed U.S. government programs related to the subject over the over the previous decades to come forward and and you know tell their story and also get 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 it into Congress. So. Congress is taking this very seriously. Both the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, as well as the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, have been briefed on this stuff regularly, and they are they are a dog with a bone. They're not giving this up. So yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm I'm sure Brandon, you want to ask me lots of questions, but I guess the the top line is that UAPs are 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 a serious subject. Now, the, there's a lot more questions, right? Like, what are they? What do they, what do they represent? And that's where I think you could be more speculative. I think at least I have high confidence that there are unidentified objects, vehicles that are you know demonstrating aerodynamic performance capabilities that far exceed any any known technology and demonstrate to harken back to our earlier conversation, you know, understanding of, of physics principles and associated technology that we don't have access to. So, I'm sure that that will stimulate your question. Yeah, well, and do you want to go first, Vince, or you want me to go? go All you. Yeah, so first question, I guess, would be, you know, let's dive into it. Like UAPs, there's a Bayesian probability of all the different kind of phenomena that they could actually be explained by. I know you kind of have like a four quadrant or or four bucket thing, Mm -hmm. right? You want to walk us through what that is? Yeah, yeah. So this is, I think, a good principle of just reasoning in general is to, you know, think as think in terms of probabilities, right? Nothing is a certainty. And also think in terms of like possible explanations, right? When you when you have a mystery, and you're trying to account for it, you want to try to first map out what are all the possible explanations. And then you want to look at how you would ascribe like a prior probability to each of those explanations, like before you actually do any empirical investigation, before you actually look at facts, you try to understand given what you know, what is your sort of prior probability for each of those possible explanations? And then you have to do the hard work. You have to actually do empirical investigation, look for facts, look for data, and construct the, you know revisions to that to, to the set of explanations that you know force you to revise your 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 credences. So that's like what it means to be a Bayesian. <clears throat> so there's really four types of explanation for UAPs. Like one is systematic error, one is systematic deception, one is secret human technology, and one is non-human technology. Like those, I think, exhaust kind of the explanation space. So systematic error and systematic deception really are in the bucket of UAPs don't actually exist. We're either confused, mistaken, delusional, or tricked. So, you know, either our instruments are systematically faulty, you know, on F-16s and low earth orbit and underwater sensors, like everything that is picking these things up is doing the doing so in error and doing so consistently and systematically in error or the sort of belief system that we have about those reports is being like really coordinate is really the subject of a really well-resourced and coordinated deception right but you know some group of people are trying to make us believe that uaps are real and doing so over many period over a long period of time with the goal of you know instilling a false belief that these things are real so systematic deception but the, those two share the sh- share the root that uaps are not actually real objects that display any any actual performance capabilities the second set of explanations, so one is our you know, three and four, are that UAPs actually exist. There are physical objects out there doing these things, but they split into it's human technology doing those crazy things and non-human technology doing those crazy things. And so it's either our technology, whether U.S. government, you know, some breakaway human civilization, China, Russia, et cetera, that, that has figured out you know, super advanced propulsion systems or non-human technology. And that that itself can be split into lots of different sub subcategories, right? <laughs> you know, that itself could be, you know, it is extraterrestrial. So, you know, like advanced civilizations that, you know, evolved and matured to a certain level and then traveled here. It could be, you know, pre-human advanced civilizations that like before, hum- you know, before Homo sapiens got around, right? The planet was here for a long time and they sort of went through a path of evolution just like we did and got to a certain level and, you know, like 
you know, invented these uh, capabilities and maybe left and then left some stuff around to just keep keep an eye on the planet while they were gone. And so they're essentially terrestrial uh, aliens to a certain extent. There's more exotic explanations for that sort of non-human explanation. They're, they're time travelers for some. They're actually humans, but they're from the future. I only, I only say that because like two CI officers uh, have recently brought that up. It's, it's kind of odd. That's like a, a, a separate thing. And yeah, so so you have to first first tell a story, right, for each of those to give you a prior probability and say, okay, do we think, you know, what's the likelihood that we're, you know, systematically in error in all these sensor systems and, you know, human observations? What's the probability that this is all systematic deception? What's the probability that some, some part of our, you know, human civilization has created these types of technologies? And what's the probability that it's not human technology? And obviously the fourth is the most interesting, but actually all of those are kind of disconcerting, right? So I think the, the first takeaway is that none of those are really all that good. It's at least from like a, like there's no reassuring scenario there, right? Like either, like we have really crappy like you know, military sensors that are just going off and being wrong all the time. Or someone is like, you know, hoodwinking us at scale over many years and has the capability and organization to, to, to construct the systematic deception, which if you believe that scenario, you also have to discount, you know, a lot of things about like what you believe, right? Like, well, well uh, you know, my, lots of other things are, could be systematically deceived in that way. Like you have to, you'd have to raise the likelihood that the moon landing was fake. You have to raise the likelihood that, you know, lots of things you believe are, are, are not true. Scenario three is also not that reassuring that like, some cabal of, you know, humans have like figured this out and have been like keeping it under lock and key for decades. And like, that's bad because like, well, we could be using that technology now to like advance, like, you know, human life. <laughs> and like, that seems like just fundamentally unfair and like, really like, what is their agenda, right? And Sarah Fora is obviously the most interesting one, but they're all kind of like, they're all, they all, they're all forcing to reckon with aspects of your belief system. So I think that's, that's one thing if you folks that they haven't quite grokked yet is that's, uh, this thing has tripped over into a threshold where it demands an explanation and none of the explanations are all that satisfying. So I would point folks for like digging into then scenario four, which I think is the most interesting scenario, right? Non-human technology. Dr. Robin Hansen, who's uh, actually trained as an economist, but he's kind of a polymath. He's written a paper called Grab the Aliens. It's actually a serious sort of physics modeling paper. And uh, related to that Grabby sort of model, he had sort of a panspermia hypothesis that I wanted to explore with him. So like my, my, my first and maybe only episode of the Pines Pod podcast was just to get him to talk to me so I could you know ask him questions. And for those curious, at... <laughs> uh, I have that pinned up in the net. Yeah. So that's a little bit past halfway so everyone highly recommend checking that out that was a fascinating rip between you two yeah certainly and if we go into quite some detail about his model and different excursions associated with the panspermia hypothesis and it's quite complicated so i don't want to summarize it all but the you know like the key motivation right behind you know that conversation was really trying to explore okay what kind of story can we tell you know, to, to inform the prior for that, that non-human technology scenario, right? Because that's what you have to do, right? You have to say, okay, what could make this true in a way that's like the most parsimonious way, right? Without loading in too many extraneous or questionable assumptions that force you to speculate beyond physics or beyond known physical parameters or the evolution of life and how technology evolves to get you to a point where you can, you know, you know put, put, put a number on that. And the basic like story is panspermia, right? So the mystery of, of uh, the Fermi paradox is that Okay, like, well, before we, you know, socially recognize that UAPs were, were real, like, we thought we were alone. Well, why, right? And we thought there's like a great filter. And like, we reach a certain point, and we just kill it. Like most civilizations pull themselves up. And that's why, you know, none have evolved in, you know, 13.7 billion years, that the universe is, you know, since the Big Bang. Um, and so Robin Hansen has this uh, model called the Grabby Aliens model, where there's basically two different types of aliens, like in principle, right? Or two different types of civilizations, just like full stop, right? There's civilizations that 
like mature to some level and then stop for whatever reason. And you can give lots of explanations for why they stop, you know, maturing or, and really in principle expanding, or they keep expanding. And the definition of just like a gravity civilization is just a civilization that doesn't stop expanding. And that's essentially at any point in that sort of hard scrabble frontier, like any element of civilization decides not to expand, won't. But all it takes is one aspect of civilization to want to expand and have the capability to expand, and it will. And that is a process that, you know, is sort of a, is a would, would, would proceed to sort of fill up its proximate neighborhood and would remake, you know, its, uh, its surrounding area in a way that, you know, would be observable to us, right? So the, the hypothesis is that we look out into, 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 you know, with our telescopes and we don't see obviously remade galaxy clusters. Like we don't see evidence of there being these grabby civilizations that have, you know, remade large portions of their... Of, the, of their galactic neighborhood. And, and so his model is actually taking that as, as sort of empirical data to constrain, you know, sort of an estimate of how, how much of the universe is currently filled up by these gravity civilizations. And so you can go to his paper and you can like walk through it, but basically like, I think it's roughly 30 to 40% of the universe's volume is already filled up and they're expanding at, you know, two thirds of the speed of light. And there may be a billion to 2 billion light years away. And, and if we go out to meet them, you know, we'd meet them in 500 to 500 million to a, a billion years. And that's like an interesting like side model, but like it's, you know, like three parameters and it's, you know, quite interesting like model just from a, a matter of like a sort of parsimony. And I think it makes pretty reasonable assumptions, but it doesn't actually explain like UAPs, right? The key is that like the UAPs that we think are here are not these gravity aliens that are just like <laughs> come bulldozing through and like just turn everything into whatever they want. They're here, clearly here, like not doing that. Otherwise we wouldn't be around anymore. So there, there must not be gravity. And the question is, well, that's a mystery. Like what types of civilization could they come from that, 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 that would involve them sending probes out to, you know, neighboring systems that are not that that they don't intend to just like like immediately convert into like wherever they want. And so this is the panspermia hypothesis that like what you're trying to solve for is this problem that, you know, in the gravity aliens model, civilizations emerge really far away from each other. Right. It's kind of a Poisson process of like a hard steps model of of, you know, like try, 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 and then, you know, on un unlock, you know, basic like amino acid or like chemical synthesis and then try, try, try and unlock you know, like monocellular organisms or whatever sort of, you know, entropy gradient you can, you can, you know, evolve some sort of self-replicating chemistry on. And then try, 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 you get to sort of complex life. Try, 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 you get to advanced life. Try, 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 you get to advanced physics, knowledge and building starships, et cetera. So it's like a try hard, that's like a, that's a, that's like a combinatorial process. It just takes a lot of time. And so if you go out into the far future, you're much more likely to see many more civilizations emerge, you know, far into the universe's future than, than early on. So that's a mystery, right? Like, why, why are we here? Like, this actually explains why we're early is because there's a date. <laughs> like, we will, we will not have been able to arrive later because by then, gravity aliens will have filled up the universe and there won't be any uh, space for new civilizations to, to pop in. So, like, that's why we're early. That kind of explains the great filter. The panspermia hypothesis comes with the idea that okay, it's really hard to do this try, 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 get to advanced life step, but you can raise a probability that this, that you would have uh, siblings if you have exchange of material between say a star system that, that figured this out, right? That like got that try, try, try hard step over a billion years and figured out, you know, a few steps up that, up that staircase of, of kind of complex sort of complex life. And then we know from, you know, actual astrophysics that uh, our, our system was born in a stellar nursery with, you know, a thousand to 10,000 other star systems in sort of close proximity. And there was, you know, massive exchange of, 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 of material. Bombardment of asteroids was actually pretty common in the typical, you know, time scales, you know, several hundred million years to exchange, you know, material between those systems, which is, you know, on a time scale to, you know, exchange lots of material in the early history of the solar system. And so the hypothesis is that one of our neighboring stars had a planet 
that planet like basically had enough time to like click through a few of these steps, got hit by an asteroid. That asteroid went off and got captured by our by our solar system. It landed on Earth and basically seeded Earth with life and helped us basically bootstrap up that kind of a, that uh, that that combinatorial ladder. There's some indirect evidence if you looked at measures of genetic complexity using like uh, measures of complexity called Kolmogorov complexity. That like 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 it's like a linear. It's a line that goes back to four billion years, but it, like hits the y-axis. So it looks like it like if you extrapolate it back, it sort of implies that like genetic complexity started like before Earth was around. It's a very indirect evidence for panspermia. But it would explain, you know, okay, this 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 question then, right? Like why are they here? Right. So if you assume the civilization basically got got a head start on us and then got to a point where they explored the primary space of their own physics, figured out, you know, post-Einstein physics and can now create these, you know you know, very advanced, like tic-tac-like machines, they decided not to become gravity. So they had a rule that was really strictly enforced for a long period of time about not being gravity. So they would just not leave. And they were able to enforce that rule. It's basically a totalitarian society. And, you know, they were able to enforce it. Like that's the, that's what you have to build into the model is they were able to actively constrain their civilization, sort of lock everything down. But they would know that they would potentially have an external threat coming down the line because they would, like us, have this idea of panspermia. They would look out and they could see which stars have, you know, the same sort of, uh, that are their siblings, right? They're made of the same gases. So they have the same kind of sort of of spectrum. And they could then like use like super Hubbles to look at us and say, oh, actually they have planets in the habitable zone. Like those could, those, those could nucleate civilizations that may decide not to become grabby. And if those civilizations decide not to become grabby, well, that's a problem for us. <laughs> so we need to send out some, some, some limited probes who have a very restrictive SOP to just kind of keep an eye on civilizations that could become grabby. And, you know, that the implication of that scenario is that they're here to enforce the rule about, about becoming grabby. They would like to persuade us in this scenario that it's better for us if we decide not to become grabby, like like they did. But the implication is that they have the ability to enforce that rule if we if we look like we're going to break it. And so that that gets you. Yeah, that's that's where that scenario ends. Right. It, it puts you into this sort of weird, weird penumbra where UAPs are real. They're here essentially as sort of like advanced probes that have a very restrictive SOP, which is just monitor for signs of advanced capability. And maybe that's what explains the, the sort of uptick in their observations once we sort of detonate the weapons. <laughs> you know, maybe part of their sensor system is just look for you know, gamma rays as a signal of they started blowing up nuclear weapons and then start buzzing around and l- let us know that like, we're not the top dog anymore. And like any sociological animal or, you know, it's like social animal, uh, you respect the hierarchy, right? Like the, the, w- when, when there's a new king, you sort of defer to the king. If the king has obviously advanced more capabilities than you, it's probably a good idea to follow the, follow the new king. And that maybe is what they're here to do, just to kind of buzz around, get us used to the idea without being too disruptive that, you know, that we're not the top dog. They're the top dog. They have this rule and they want us to follow this rule. And uh, they don't want to give too much away about themselves. The things that might turn us off from them might make us feel that like we don't actually want to follow them. You know, like we dislike strangers. <laughs> Most people dislike strangers and strange cultures definitely turn people off. So they wouldn't want to give away too much about them. They just, you know, want to let us know they have this rule and they can enforce it. And yeah, that would put us in a kind of a weird position because uh, we would just kind of be stuck, right? We wouldn't really, we would know they're here with ever high fidelity, but we wouldn't really figure out much more. And this brings into the physics question of like, okay, well, <clears throat> how close are we to that threshold point, right? And I actually was asking Robin about this, like, like this is a problem for us potentially if we discover the next new physics and we go gung-ho like Elon Musk and say, yeah, like the destiny of humanity is to colonize Mars and the stars. Well, are we going to be bumping up against some invisible red line that that they want us to, you know, know is there, but maybe it's not as explicit and <laughs> we may trip it before before we recognize it's there. Anyways, that's like that's one scenario, right? But I also think, you know, I I don't anchor too much on that one scenario 
because there's also a lot of weird stuff associated with UAPs that maybe that scenario can't explain. And I, I don't really, I'm not an expert on all those things, but you know, the UAP phenomenon as the US government is starting to look into it is, is a very, really weird and complicated thing. And that, that one simple scenario, I don't think necessarily captures everything that, that sort of goes into that bucket yet. But anyways, yeah, that's, that's going down that particular rabbit hole. I, I think this is where it's, it's interesting, right? Like, it's a tough kind of like, it's weird. It's in like the sort of limbo space of kind of social acceptability. But ironically enough, like the government's like much further ahead on this, like than I think the sort of median, you know, CNN watcher is. And I think they're, they're actually, I think, starting to think about how to communicate this. So if you, if you follow Eric Weinstein, you follow Sam Harris or some other kind of, you know, quote, quote, thought leaders, they've made oblique references to the fact that they've been contacted by folks either in or out of the government, former senior intelligence officials, former military officials, even political officials at, you know, very senior levels to consult with on how to approach this conversation in ways that won't, you know, create social and economic instability. This is, I think, like a serious question. Like, I actually have concerns about this. I think I had a tweet like a while ago, maybe it was more tongue in cheek than it should have been. But like, like, you know, there are serious sort of like macro and social instability concerns associated with like, that question, right? Like, there's a reason why you would just like come out tomorrow and say, yeah, yeah, there's these, these things are real non-human technology. We have no idea what they're doing or why they're here, but go about your business, everybody. I don't know. Like that, there's a lot of downside risk to, you know, the social and political order uh, <laughs> that I think you'd want, you'd want, you'd want people to think through before just mm -hmm. like coming out and just like blasting that. Yeah, no, that, that makes a ton of sense. And I think it also serves as a nice segue a little bit. I know Brandon is putting together an awesome event in Miami for Bitcoin 2023. And last year, Avi Loeb and Eric Weinstein both appeared as speakers on the agenda. Avi is a chair of, let me make sure I get this right. He's the director of the Institute for Theory and Computation at the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. And of course, Eric Weinstein is well-known for his well-articulated stances on UAPs and always a very, you know, insightful and entertaining listen there as well. And Brandon, I guess I would just be curious if you could share anything that you're looking forward to in Miami. And I guess before you do a little bit of a non sequitur, but I thought it was interesting, Matthew, that you mentioned um, Stephen Wolfram and Brandon's piece speaks a little bit to how to communicate with aliens. And it's interesting to me that Wolfram advised on the movie Arrival, trying to understand how we could communicate linguistically with aliens, despite the fact that that would obviously be a very foreign experience for us. So kind of a nice way to tie that together. But Rand, is there anything you could share that will be taking place in Miami that you're particularly excited about? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, for starters, Matthew will, of course, be there. Matt, are you on the site yet? Have you talked to McShane? Have we done that song and dance? I don't I don't know. I don't I don't think so. But yeah, yeah, I think I was planning to be there. But yeah. yeah. Well, so congrats, Matt, you're going to be there. Everyone, <laughs> everyone's listening here. So yeah, no, you know, we're, we're putting together a really cool roster this year. You know, there's a lot that we're thinking about in terms of just how the market has changed over the past really year, all the obvious, you know, calamities that, that have hit. And so, you know, point in general, we're, we're looking about like, you know, where do we go from here? Like, how, how do you rebuild with Bitcoin kind of as your core values, as your core ethos? And so, you know, the, that's, that's how we're taking it for the, the conference generally. We've got some great speakers. Zoltan Zar from Credit Suisse is kind of a new face who recently been discussing, like, you know, some of the geopolitical implications of, of Bitcoin, you know, of Bretton Woods 3 slash where does Bitcoin fit in that. Pines himself has, has actually pontificated on that as well. Someday, you know, I'll get Zoltan and Pines in, in a room together and just watch them go. But 
Yeah, and you know, I'm really excited because we have like three speakers who we're really close to announcing that will each be a crazy, crazy drop when it happens, but we haven't gotten there yet. So, you know, patience, patience is a virtue. But yeah, you know, we're, we're expecting to be once again, the biggest conference in the entire space and we'll be in Miami on April or sorry, May 18th through 20th. And uh, yeah, you know, everyone should grab their ticket to Bitcoin 2023. It's funny. I actually had like one of my, my most memorable experiences was the the last Bitcoin conference, and I was I was in the green room with Eric Weinstein and and Avi Loeb, and like honestly, like that was a nutso conversation. So I'm hoping I can have a part two for that. And yeah, actually, Stephen Wolfram, I I don't think he's officially affiliated with the Galileo Initiative, but I know he has he has spoken with Avi, and I think yeah, that what what I think there is an emerging kind of intellectual kind of cohort that's taking this seriously. It's funny if you think like the connection between finance and physics and and UAPs. It's actually it's actually happening. So uh, Jim Simons, who is a famous hedge fund you know, mathematician, physics genius behind I think it's Renaissance Technologies, like the like super shadowy, super successful hedge fund. They just like hire all the mathematicians you know out of Harvard, MIT, and like figure out how to you know, front run everyone. But he's, you know, he's multi-billionaire. So he has a foundation, the Simons Foundation. The president of the Simons Foundation is actually the head of the UAP task force that, that NASA set up. And yeah, I'm aware of some folks that are on that task force. And yeah, it's, it's happening. It's, it's, and you know, for, for, for the plug for Bitcoin, I think, you know, I want to talk with Eric, like his frustration, you know, as Eric, you know, is want to, to let people know is just like, okay, like, you know, you, you want to change the world, Bitcoiners, right? Like, you know, put up or shut up, right? Like, like create a foundation to invest in heterodox physics, right? If you want to change the world, you know, it, beyond, it means going beyond just Bitcoin stuff. It means actually, you know, using your, using your bags to change the world in a way that you think is good. And the people with, you know, fiat bags are doing that. <laughs> They're actually doing that in a way that I think intersects with UAPs, actually. So yeah, that might, be, that, might be part of, that might be part of his new pitch is, uh, you know, throw some money in here so we're not just at the mercy of the federal government to, you know, like they're not going to release classified data. They're just, they're just not going to do that, right? Even though it exists in voluminous quantities, high-resolution res- high video, you know, underwater sensor de- detections, uh, you know, uh, everything you can imagine. But they're not going to release that, right? So that's what Avi's project is about, is trying to... Build, build a private site center system. And, you know, he's getting money from, from those fiat billionaires. Maybe the, the Bitcoin billionaires can step up. Yeah, hopefully so. And I, I would argue that some of them already are. We have Bill Miller at the Santa Fe Institute. He's uh, their largest owner. I've written a little bit about him on bitcoinmagazine.com, but uh, he funds the, the Santa Fe Institute, like I said, and they've actually done some really interesting research on complex adaptive systems, but also into the origin of life with people like Sarah Walker, who's another great listen and read as well. Highly recommend everyone check out her work too. But guys, I really, really appreciate both of you being so generous with your time. This was a fascinating conversation and I have so many questions left, but I think it might be best if we wrap it up here and save some for another time. Uh, and, and I guess with that, I will leave you both the floor, Matthew and Brandon, if there's anything you want to add, any shout outs you want to give, or, you know, maybe anything people can expect coming from you guys in the near future. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sorry, I when you when you tee me up with these questions, I can ramble for 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 a long period of time. No, I, so, I appreciate uh, it. I appreciate you did, you did an awesome job. <laughs> I appreciate last. I appreciate the audience's forbearance on some of this stuff. You're really getting into some some heady topics. Yeah, no, I got I got nothing to plug necessarily, except for you know my novel. I just published it about two three weeks ago. So if you like a sort of science thrillers, espionage, and sort of speculative sort of philosophical fiction you know, pick that up. You know, if you happen to be a, a C-suite executive and multinational and facing geopolitical or, you know, cybersecurity risk, hit me up. That's my day job. And yeah, I guess I'll be seeing folks at the Bitcoin Miami conference. Thanks for having me. My fellow plebs, come celebrate Bitcoin winner in Miami at 
Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from Miami 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLive to get 10% off your tickets before prices go up. Magazine time, y'all. Bitcoin is for everyone, lefties, righties, and the rejectors of the false dichotomy alike. And that is why the newest Bitcoin magazine print edition is called the Orange Party Issue. It features articles by President Naib Bukele, Jeff Dice, Natalie Smolinski, Eric Kaysen, Max Kaiser, and Jimmy Song. Get your copy from the local Barnes & Noble bookstore or from the Bitcoin Magazine store at bitcoinmagazine.com and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off your annual subscription today. Plebs, if you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, then you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's a free and a paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts Dylan LeClaire, Dr. Jeff Ross, and Sam Rule break down what's going on in the market so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. 